Welcome to Season 2 of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you for joining the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, your host, and today we have Dr. Arturo Loiza Bonilla, Chief Medical Officer and Director of Research for the Cancer Treatment Center of America in Philadelphia, and he's here to talk to us about the impact precision medicine is making in gastrointestinal disease. Dr. Bonilla, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me here. It's, it's always great to talk to you. Absolutely. So can you share a bit of your background and how you came to lead the program at CTCA Philadelphia? Uh, sure, yeah. It's always uh, good to go back and think about how you actually get into certain places. So um, thank you for asking. Uh, well, as you know, I'm, uh, I'm originally from Colombia and I wanted to do research. Uh, that was always my passion and wanted to do something uh, better, meaningful for my patients as I, I have a... Uh, some family history of not being well taken care of because they didn't have access to physicians and whatnot. So I wanted to be the first doctor in the family. Um, uh, so I ended up coming to the United States uh, for training. I was uh, lucky enough that I was able to do some research in uh, epigenetics and uh, in leukemia at the time uh, when I was uh, doing my training in Baltimore and worked with a few folks at Johns Hopkins doing that and also at the NIH. Uh, interestingly enough, by the time my brother actually had leukemia and I decided to move to the uh, Miami area so I can actually fly back and forth to take care of him while he was on, on that treatment. And uh, of course, that furthered my interest in precision oncology and, and whatnot. Not. Um, completion of my training at University of Miami, I ended up at University of Pennsylvania Rosen Cancer Center and I started working with Jen Morrison and other folks and Peter O'Dwyer uh, from ECOG on um, precision medicine approaches. Uh, they were working on the NCI match development and uh, I also worked very heavily on the Center for Personalized Diagnostics uh, at Penn and I uh, really had a passion about GI oncology so that was uh, most of the time uh, that was dedicating to take care of my patients there and uh, I decided to do a master's in medical education at the same time so uh, that really boosted my interest in taking a leadership pathway as part of my my roles and um, then at CTCA as as I don't know if how familiar folks may be with CTCA, but uh, Cancer Treatment Centers of America is a, a cancer-dedicated uh, institution that um, is located in multiple cities across the United States, uh, and they have a model that has been centralized. Basically, the five hospitals all coming together to work in a, uh, in a way to um, promote research, to promote innovation. They have a very unique precision medicine program uh, for patients, so make it very personalized and what they call the mother standard of care. So that really caught my attention um, and uh, they wanted to make their research program even more robust and I felt that was a real opportunity for me to actually do it. And um, it's been three years now, and I'm very happy that actually those results have panned out pretty well. Uh, we have increased our pipeline tremendously and we come from a single 
single-digit uh, clinical trial numbers. Now we have over 79 and more uh, studies opening, and many of them are uh, precision medicine-oriented, for example, the TAPER study. Uh, so that's a little bit of my, my background. I know kind of like a long spill, but... <laughs> yeah, well, that's tremendous growth over that time. So in your, you mentioned your practice focuses on gastrointestinal malignancies. And as I understand, that's that's really a family of different histologic malignancies. What types of tumors does that include? Uh, sure. And that's exactly why I wanted to do it, because I didn't want to just do one kind of cancer. It's great to become an expert in certain things, but I wanted to have that variety as well uh, and help as many as patients as possible. So uh, that basically means any cancer from the GI tract, so it starts with the esophagus uh, down to gastric or stomach, then the uh, bowel, and then colorectal cancer, uh, also pancreas, uh, also do some neuroendocrine tumors, uh, rectal cancer, anal cancer, um, and uh, liver cancer and bowel duct cancer. So uh, quite a number of, clinic, of uh, clinical options you have there when you're talking about GI malignancies. Yeah, and, and some of those are considered to be rare tumors, uh, which has certain limitations. But what are some inherent challenges with treating GI malignancies and how can precision medicine help solve these issues? Yeah, so I think one of the major challenges is, uh, as you mentioned, few a few of them uh, may be considered rare diseases. So, for example, uh, let's say gallbladder cancer or even bowel duct cancer on its own, like uh, uh, many people think about liver cancer as just hepatocellular carcinoma, which is the most common dominant one. But of course, there's going to be a proportion of patients that have cholangiocarcinoma or have um, uh, gallbladder cancers, and they're rare. And not only they're rare, but they also have a multitude of mutations that can actually drive the cancer growth. And uh, in the past, when we didn't have access to precision medicine techniques such as next generation sequencing or other biomarkers, we uh, had to treat everyone the same way. Uh, with the up and coming of precision medicine, we had really understood that there's different subsets of patients and if we're able to sequence them appropriately, we can actually find treatment options that are actually better for them than otherwise uh, the standard of care. So, um, and of course, opportunity for clinical trials for those patients. Um, so, in in also for other cancers, such as, for example, um, colon cancer, uh, not everything's the same. So now we know it's not only the molecules, but also the precision medicine comes from the sidedness of the cancer. So right-sided versus left-sided, uh, BRAF mutated, MSI stable or high, uh, all those things are playing a significant role in, in making the best decision making for these patients. There has been data published very recently on the utility of liquid biopsies and the detection and diagnosis of GI cancers. Um, I know that that you've recently spoken at, at conferences, including Ask of GI and others. Um, what do you feel is most noteworthy in that particular area for liquid biopsies and GI malignancies? That's correct. Yeah, no, I, uh, uh, as many of you know on, on, on the podcast, um, we use liquid biopsies right now for therapeutic purposes, right? So we use it for detection of cell-free DNA uh, and see which pieces of those can we actually use for targeting, for targeted treatments and, and others. But uh, over time, it came to the question is, can we use these technologies as well to detect cancer earlier before it actually shows up in a CAT scan? Um, so that's one question. And the other one is like, can we use the, those technologies as well, uh, those tiny pieces of DNA to determine if a patient 
requires further treatment or if they uh, have already been treated. That means not necessarily cure, but maybe get the patient into remission. And uh, a number of these technologies have emerged. Uh, some of them what they call single uh, epigenomic assessment and fragmentomics, which they actually try to clean up the all the background noise on mutations that are really not important and make sure that you um, actually see the real cell-free DNA pieces in the bloodstream are very high or what they call ultra deep sequencing. So they really go deep to really capture those tiny pieces uh, with single blood draws. The other assessments that they're doing is doing it with tumor informed. That means that they take the tumor out, they make an analysis of different variants. Uh, the most common ones are 16 variants that they look for and then they personalize the uh, liquid biopsy for the patient based on those mutations or those variants and follow the patient over time. Uh, what the most recent data have shown based on these approaches is that uh, you can indeed predict the appearance of uh, cell-free DNA and correlated with uh, CAT scan showing uh, metastases or a recurrence, sometimes as far as nine months in advance. Um, so kind of help you to guide treatment and, and be a little bit more proactive. And also helps you to figure out which patient is going to be benefit the most from certain treatments. So let's say in adjuvant colon cancer, if the patient has persistent cell-free DNA throughout the course, no matter how good or bad the stage was for the patient, um, you know this patient is going to recur regardless. But if you actually clear the cell-free DNA for those patients or they never have cell-free DNA from the tumor from the beginning, uh, it's almost a guarantee that the patient will get into prolonged sustained remission to, and sometimes cures, which sometimes we actually didn't think about it, uh, but it makes sense, right? If there's no cell-free DNA in the bloodstream, likely the cancer has really not gone elsewhere and, and has been treated with the, with the chemotherapy. There is a difference of opinion about the use of liquid biopsies, whether it should be more prognostic or predictive. But for GI tumors, one of the difficulties is detecting it early because there's no good serodiagnostic test for some of these diseases. Where do you think we are with using liquid biopsy uh, to be able to predict uh, response to therapy versus um, the ability to go in and and biopsy the tumor itself and doing it on tissue. Um, what are your thoughts about the use of that versus solid tissue in the assessment? Right. Well, I think the jury is still out. Um, so I think if you ask today, 2020, tissue is still the issue. Uh, we still need the tissue diagnosis for architecture, for us to determine the right histology, etc. However, uh, efforts by certain companies such as Grail, for example, we're looking at a very, very deep analysis of uh, DNA in the bloodstream and looking for epigenetic signatures and all that can help us to detect cancer earlier um, before we actually go and do biopsies and sometimes even determine the tissue of origin, which will be, which is a very interesting way to look at this using machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, to really finding uh, based on those signatures where the tumor was coming from. Um, so I think it's a very promising technology. Uh, 
it's the future of what we want to do for diagnosis and for maybe detecting earlier in the game many of these cancers and potentially for monitoring. Uh, I think for monitoring currently, it has a lot of uh, promise already without having to uh, reinvent the wheel. Uh, in terms of early diagnosis uh, of cancer, we still have a way to go because we haven't really found how to make a cost-effective measure of this, right? Because ideally, yeah, everyone can get it, but how expensive is going to be for us in the healthcare system to get everyone uh, getting blood samples frequently just to see if there's cancer coming. So uh, I think more to follow, but there's a lot of good studies coming and, and I'm very excited about the opportunities in the future. You mentioned earlier some of the molecular targets that are interesting, but as we sit here today, what molecular targets in which diseases GI diseases are most actionable and relevant today, and what biomarkers are emerging in the treatment of, of GI tumors? Right. So, well, I think once again, this is an evolving field. And uh, as you well pointed, uh, there's a few ones that are up and coming and becoming more relevant. So, in GI malignancies, the first thing we need to do is to make sure that everyone gets tested for MSI high or, 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 or MSI stable. Basically, mismatch repair, uh, deficiency or proficiency in every single tissue because um, we have seen in real-world data that even patients that potentially may be eligible for these immune checkpoint inhibitors, they have missed the opportunity for being tested and as such, then the opportunity to get a very good response to IO or immune therapy. So uh, that's the first one that I think is pretty standard. Um, other very common ones, you know, checking HER2, for example, in uh, now colon cancer, and we also check it in gastric cancer as usual. Um, PD, uh, PD-1 overexpression is also something very uh, interesting as we're looking for different scores for responses in terms of gastric cancer. Um, but other ones that are becoming more relevant are, for example, uh, BRCA or BRCA gene uh, tumor mutations uh, in pancreatic cancer. Why? Because we know now that there's a new drug approved, uh, Laprev, for patients who have been treated with uh, platinum-based treatment uh, as an induction in metastatic site in pancreatic cancer. And if they have the BRCA mutation, you can start them on maintenance uh, Olaprev. And, and, and keep it there based on the POLO trial results. So I think we should learn more about how that pans out in terms of survival, but it's given a few more of my patients options for maintenance uh, so they don't have to stick on chemo and still hopefully keep the cancer under control. Uh, in colon cancer, we are seeing uh, a plethora of new things happening beyond uh, the standard RAS, but one thing is important is everyone should get a standard uh, extended RAS testing and BRAF, uh, which is only seeing probably half of the patients in the community. So we should do uh, a little bit more exercise into getting those connection sequencing or small panels very accurate for those patients. And uh, why? Because we know, for example, for BRAF mutations, uh, VC100 uh, specifically, uh, we can target uh, them with a combination of an EGF inhibitor and uh, BRAF and MEK inhibitor uh, in 
actually very good responses based on the Beacon CRC study. So um, uh, that can also correlate with uh, MSI status sometimes or with high tumor mutational burden, which may also predict responses to immune therapy. We put a patient in a clinical trial. Um, so uh, a, a lot of new things are happening in that space, uh, and uh, certainly more will learn as we are doing more sequencing and testing of these patients. Um, interested to see how the NTRAC fusion story happens further in colon cancer. Uh, of course, there's a small proportion, less than 1%, but if you have it, the patient's going to respond well, and it also happens in other uh, GI malignancies. So uh, there's still a lot of things happening, and, and I'm excited as well to put my pictures on the clinical trials because it's the way to go. Absolutely. You know, on the topic of discovery, uh, I recently read some commentary uh, from Dr. Tanyos Bikai Saab, who spoke at the 2020 GI Cancer Symposium about why it's important to change clinical trial design to develop new agents for new targets in a more efficient way for GI malignancies. Specifically, he suggested changing from a basket trial design, which he says is, is target specific and tumor agnostic, to an umbrella trial design, which enriches for the target in a specific disease. Can you kind of expound on that for our listeners and, and how can this help accelerate the use of precision medicine in GI cancers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that is right on the money. Um, we have been using basket studies right now as a way, as you're saying, discovery, right? So studies, for example, taper or NCA match, they're very, very good because you really want to have as many patients as possible tested for different biomarkers and see how they do over time and then you find a signal. Um, so, so far, that's been helpful in a number of different malignancies. When you're talking about umbrella trials, you're really focusing on a single disease. So, let's say a prime example for this is cholangiocarcinoma or, or bowel cancers. Why? Because we know that those cancers have a lot of mutations, but always in low frequency. So, it's going to be very hard to put many patients on the same tumor type on a basket study because they're going to be filled by someone else's, right, by, by any other kind of cancer, not the one you're looking for. If you focus in only on the tumor type that you really want to enrich, then you can really dedicate those arms for only the mutations when they appear. Uh, and if you do it in a cooperative group fashion or, or, or a broad collaboration, you can get enough patients. So in bowel cancer, for example, you can do an arm that is against BRF. The other one, it has uh, FGFR. The other one is MSI. The other one is TMB uh, and, and IDH1 and 2. So as you can see, there's a multitude of biomarkers that could be placed on, and that can accelerate this, the field for that specific disease. Uh, ideally, we can do this effort in a more... Uh, synchronous fashion with multiple tumor types at the same time in all those studies so we can get uh, answers not sequentially but at the same time. He mentioned in this commentary that every patient should be profiled. Now, he didn't put a qualifier on that statement because we know that there's kind of two schools of thought. Some believe that you can't find an aberration if you don't look for it, so they believe an expansive panel, broad-based molecular profiling should be run as often as possible, but then some believe that you only need maybe 25 genes to manage the lifestyle, uh, the lifetime of a patient. Where do you sit on um, when a large or smaller panel should be run? Right. So um, I think it, it all comes down to cost effectiveness, right? So 
in my perspective, if you have a broad um, amount of clinical trials that are focusing on on multiple alterations uh, or genomics and, and whatnot, I think it, it makes sense to actually do testing for as many patients as you can, of course, in the right setting, right? So in a metastatic setting, refractory setting, uh, where the patient is not going to get an extra bill because of that. Uh, and also, um, at the same time, you don't do excessive repetitive testing unless it's really necessary. So for example, the patient had genotype four years ago, and now the patient has lung cancer, and now it's progressing. It makes sense to repeat it, right? So. Um, I, I'm a strong advocate for next-gen sequencing at least uh, one time <laughs> uh, for most of my patients. Why? Because there's a lot of clinical trials right now. Even for NCI match, uh, it's open at over 3,000 practices across the United States, uh, community-based and academic-based. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to really contribute to this to the field of precision medicine. And um, I think, at least for our perspective at Cancer Treatment Centers of America, we uh, use that testing for uh, matching our patients to clinical trials. And so far has been very successful. We have been able to enroll significantly in TAPER, um, NCI Match, and other uh, sponsored clinical trials, and, and showing how we can advance a precision medicine program uh, with the use of the right biomarkers at the right time for every patient. So um, I, I, I hope that answered the question. I think it's, it's relative, but a very strong advocate of doing the testing for patients, yes. For sure. Well, you also mentioned the mother standard of care that that you've created um, across the network at CTCA. I do understand that you know the importance of operationalizing and standardizing the application of precision medicine in the clinic in order to identify patients for targeted therapies and clinical trials. Um, how big is that as community practices and other people try to apply precision medicine? How important is the ability to operationalize? No, I think it's extremely important. You need need to uh, make sure that you have a dedicated team that is actually looking at how to use this information in the most effective fashion, that any testing and any libraries that you have of biomarkers for your patients is aligned with the current treatment pathways that you have, uh, the current uh, uh, alternatives you have for clinical trials, and align your portfolio in the future as you understand your own population of patients. Uh, and also may help you to set up your referral networks, right? So even we work in a, in, in, in a community, we also want to refer patients to different areas. And if you have a study that focuses on NTRAC, for example, in a place, send the patient there and they come back when they need it or they reciprocate, you have the other studies. So having that operationalization and quick efficiency and getting uh, the right testing at the right patient at the right time and, and share that information appropriately when, it's, when it makes sense, uh, it's of the essence. Dr. Arturo Loiza Bonilla, Chief of Medical Oncology and Director of Research for Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Philadelphia. If, uh, if listeners want to reach out to you and connect with you via social media, do you have a Twitter handle or somewhere they can connect with you? Uh, sure, yeah. It's Dr. Bonilla Onk, like O-N-C, uh, in Twitter. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. Just look for my name. I'll be there. <laughs> yeah. Well, before I let you go, Dr. Bonilla, I do my research and I often find that our guests are just as interesting outside of the clinic or the lab or the boardroom as they are inside. And I learned that we almost lost you to American Idol that you are a classically trained singer. And in fact, you were a part of the world-renowned Handel Choir in Baltimore when you were 
in in residency. So so what was harder, medical school or auditioning for the Handel Choir? <laughs> well, I had to ask uh, our conductor. She was pretty rough, I think, harder than medical school. <laughs> uh, it's always good to to have the, the opportunity to you know do something else outside of medicine. It kind of like uh, you know makes you happy, and and I think singing is one of those things that that makes me feel great um, uh, whenever I get the chance. So, but um, yeah, I, I'm glad you did the research. But yeah, we'll do karaoke next time. How about that? <laughs> I'll take it. I, I know many of your peers hear you at conferences uh, all over the world talking about uh, GI malignancies, but I bet they haven't heard you sing. <laughs> uh, not, not yet. We'll see. Maybe do the national anthem or something like that. <laughs> there you go. Well, we really appreciate you for bringing your knowledge and expertise to, to help our audience broaden uh, their knowledge of precision medicine and GI malignancies. Thank you very much, Dr. Penelia, for being a guest on the Precision Medicine Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me here. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello or on LinkedIn at the Intervention Insights company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Mm-hmm.